how do we work collaboratively with customers to define what value means? What is valuable to a customer? What are the outcomes they're trying to, to achieve over time? How do we put KPIs, metrics, targets, track them over time and make sure that we are in sync with our customers and we can make a good case for us collaboratively building value from that relationship? It's really, it's a powerful software just right. in general ecosystems. But I think this discipline of value is super interesting because it's something I've talked about for 20 years. And a lot of the things that software can do are essentially software or technology versions of best practices that I've been involved in profiling for decades. So it's yeah. a cool place to wind up. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Brent Adamson. Most of you are familiar with Brent as the co-author of The Challenger Sale and the co-author of The Challenger Customer. And he's also currently the global head of research and communities for ecosystems, a leading platform for quantifying customer value. And in our conversation today, we cover a wide range of topics. We, first of all, we dive into what sales leaders and individual sellers need to focus on in order to successfully navigate this economic downturn that we're in the midst of. Some of what impedes sellers in a downturn is a lack of innovation about how they sell. So Brent and I dig into ways that B2B sales perhaps is stuck in a rut and things we can do to get unstuck. So we talk about some of the new perspectives that are needed in sales when it comes to quota, quota attainment, win rates, and the importance of the buyer experience with the seller in dictating those win rates. Then we explore some of what Brent is seeing in his research in the way of innovative new approaches to selling. So we get into all this and much, much more. Before we get to Brent, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, let's jump into it. Brent, welcome back to the show. Andy, it's good to be here. Thanks for the invite. Well, it's good to have you back. Uh, it's, it's it's been a while. It's been a while. Yes, it has been a while. Yeah. But you've been busy, so I'm and so I guess have I. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess I was like on the verboten list for a while or something like that. I mean, <laughs> with your Gartner relationship and so on. So that was that wasn't the Adamson thing. That was a Gartner thing. But that's, that's all. It's all behind us. Yeah. Yeah. So just on the off chance that someone listening to this doesn't know who you are, tell us about you and who who you are and what you do. Um, so Brent Adamson, um, most, I guess, well-known for, it's not that I'm well-known, Andy, it's actually books I've been associated with are well-known, which is The Challenger Sale and The Challenger Customer. Um, I am co-author of both of those books with a number of colleagues. And frankly, though their names are not on the front cover of the books, a huge number of incredibly talented people who at the time were with me or with us together at CEB, uh, which of course mm -hmm. then was acquired by Gartner. Mm -hmm. um, so 20 years of career, uh, uh, there was another whole career before that as a German professor and a linguist and a whole bunch of other stuff All for right. a different conversation. Well, you want to go there? I didn't know yeah. that. Where, where, yeah. Where'd you do that? So uh, my graduate work is from the University of Texas. Uh, as yeah. my PhD in German and applied linguistics at Texas. And then I was on the faculty at Michigan State. For, I made about halfway to tenure. Uh, before I ultimately decided to get an MBA and, and move into the business world. Um, so I, that was about f the first 15 or so, maybe a little bit more, 20 years of my career. And then I joined CEB or Corporate Executive Board in 20, uh, 2003 um, and been studying sales and marketing and buying and selling ever since. But I, I guess if I put it all together, Andy, I'd, I'd tell you, I've made a, a now what, a roughly, what, 30-year career, a little longer out of mm. research, researching the heck out of stuff, teaching the heck out of stuff and writing the heck out of stuff and talking about it. Um, and then I, the, the one quick footnote at the end is, uh, so I, um, after 20 years, almost 19 years, I departed Gartner NCB in May 
and have just recently joined a company called Ecosystems, which we could talk a little bit about if you want. The company is interesting, but also just the space that this company occupies. It's a SaaS company because everything today right. is a SaaS company, right? But the uh, we're in the business of, of, I guess, the discipline would be called value management. But I, I would say we, we work in the space of how do we work collaboratively with customers to define what value means? What What mm-hmm. is valuable to a customer? What are the outcomes they're trying to to, to achieve over time? Uh, how would we put KPIs, metrics, targets, track them over time and make sure that we are in sync with our customers and we can make a good case for us collaboratively building value from that relationship? It's really, it's a, it's a powerful software just right. in general ecosystems. Um, but I think more interestingly for equally interesting to me is this discipline of value is super interesting because it's something I've talked about for 20 years. Uh, and a lot of the things that software can do are, Essentially, software or technology versions of best practices that I've been involved in profiling for decades. So it's yeah. a cool place to wind up. Yeah. Well, also, since value has become such a big cliche, I mean, it's sort of nice, yeah. to, <laughs> nice to be able to have something that sort of uh, substantiates what it is. 100%. Totally. Yeah. It's like one of those things like being a trusted advisor. <laughs> <laughs> there's yeah. like there's like a short list of things we always so you always want to be a value seller, a trusted advisor. Uh, there's a couple others I'd add to that. A thought leader. There's another one. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, these are these sort of empty vessel words that kind of everyone agrees with, but everyone means something slightly different when they say them. So it's good yeah. to put some discipline around them. Well, so since I have the you know, benefit of having you here, I want to talk yeah. about some big picture things. So cool. One you sort of talked about, which is. You know, lining buyers and sellers. And yeah. yeah, I always like to refer to the famous yeah, buyer enablement diagram, spaghetti mm-hmm. diagram. The spaghetti bowl. Spaghetti, yeah. Which I loved. I absolutely love because, you know, I was in a meeting where you sort of previewed that for us. Yeah. And, and I was like, that's like the first time I'd seen something. I said, oh, my God, that completely and accurately reflected my experience on large enterprise deals. Yeah. <laughs> big companies like. Oh yeah, this this first time I'd seen something like that. What I'm curious though is I haven't I've not personally seen many companies that have looked at that and said, "Oh well, we really need to change how we're how we're approaching the buyer." And, yeah, you know, yeah, that's, that's true. What you've seen? I mean, you you talked to yeah. many companies. So so you know, the so the diagram, by the way, um, if I may just briefly, um, I'll let you know it was designed by a, a dear friend of mine and colleague who at the time was at. Um, CB Gartner uh, on the research side and in the marketing practice team is Martha Mathers, who's now a CMO in her own right. Mm-hmm. Um, but Martha and I and the team were talking about it, and we're we're building this project around, not surprisingly for marketers, around buy, mapping the customer's buying journey. So we right. want to talk about you know the right and wrong ways of mapping the customer buying journey, aligning the customer buying journey, and and we were in this conversation around you know there's a fallacy around this buying journey that it's linear or that it even makes sense, right. and so we wanted to find some graphic way to depict the chaos of of buying, and so I said. Martha and I were talking. I said, "You know, what we need we need a we need just like I just need a diagram that looks linear, but then it's got arrows shooting out all over, and right. it's got you know circles." And and she agreed. And so she sat down on a Sunday afternoon on her couch with her daughter and and put that what I consider one of the best graphics we ever produced uh, together. So kudos to her. But the the whole idea behind that, Andy, is the um. So if you think about sort of even not even in a in a stepwise movement, but in a in a jobs to be done sort of framework of what are the jobs oh, a customer has to complete to their satisfaction to move forward in a purchase, and there's it's pretty straightforward the way we always thought about it is uh, problem identification. I've got to mm-hmm. identify a problem. I've got to explore solutions. I've got to build requirements and select a supplier. I and mean, you could make it more complicated, right. but it's pretty 
conveniently simple way to think about it. Right. But even then, you think, well, so obviously it's linear, right? I can't, I can't explore solutions until I identify, until I identify a problem. But even, but we all know in reality, you identify a problem, you start exploring solutions. Someone else gets involved, some new questions arise. You you find out about new tech or something explodes in the back end, and all of a sudden I got to go back and reevaluate the problem. So it's two steps forward, one step back, and pretty soon when you map it all out, you get the spaghetti bowl diagram. So the the, the lesson for um, here's where I think this gets interesting because the lesson for sellers and marketers, for commercial leaders and and frontline uh, execs uh, is when you look at that spaghetti bowl. I think there's a natural tendency for us on the supplier side to think about to think of that as sort of we're takers on this. Like you you look at that diagram with all the arrows and mm-hmm. I keep thinking like Alice's restaurant, the circles narrow arrows right, and right. paragraph in the back right, of each right, one. You remember right. that? You know what I'm talking. You're of age, you know what I'm talking about. But the uh I, I'm old um, enough to remember that, yes. <laughs> Welcome to the seventies. But anyway, the um so when we look at that diagram and and it, it tends to feel overwhelming, like wow. This is awful, and somehow I've got to sell into this environment. We we think of ourselves as takers uh, on on that, like that's just the reality, and somehow we've got to manage to it. But this is where I think it's interesting. The question I often ask leaders or frontline sellers when I share that diagram is this: When you look at that diagram, you know, or a, it's always illustrative. When you think of a diagram like that for your customer, who's in a better position to know what that diagram looks like for your customer? Is it you or your customer? Who's in a better position to know what that diagram looks like for your customers? Is it you or your customer? And inevitably, particularly if you're talking to marketers, they'll say, well, mm-hmm. it's our customer, of course, because marketers have been trained, by the way, to always say the word customer first before right. they say it. And it's like, so I say that with love for marketers. But the, um, but, but the, the punchline, sorry to speed up my little anecdote here, is that I, I think in many ways we know from experience, all of us, that your customers oftentimes are as surprised, if not more surprised, when they run into some of those obstacles as we are as sellers, because they, and always winds up with a phone call to us through our, <laughs> our sales rep. It always starts with a phrase, it turns out that. Mm. You know, I, I joke all the time, like any conversation with a customer starts with the phrase, it turns out that is like a relationship talk that starts with, we need to talk, right? Nothing right. good happens after that. Right. So right. it turns out procurement got involved and they've got some questions. It turns out legal needs to look this over and, and they've got some concerns, whatever it might be. But every time your customer says it turns out that, they're usually surprised. Whereas more often than not, you're not. You're like, oh, here we go. This is the one where legal gets involved. So all of that is a way to say... Whereas your customers may be surprised and frustrated deeply by the complexity of their own decision-making process, you often are in a position collectively, if not individually on the supplier side, to map that for them uh, mm-hmm. because you you sold these solutions before, theoretically, if not practically, right? So, so that puts you in this really interesting position, I think, of saying, what if I were to essentially a- assume the role of coach or Sherpa or guide, if you like, to take my mm-hmm. customer figuratively by the hand and guide them through that spaghetti bowl and, and more importantly, simplify it for them, help them anticipate obstacles, identify obstacles, and maybe avoid them altogether such that they feel more confident in their ability to navigate their own internal mm-hmm. buying process. All right. Mm-hmm. So that's just a little bit of background. Now, your question specifically is like, is anybody doing that? And the answer is 100% emphatically. So star performers just do this naturally, star performing sales sure. reps, I should right, say. Right. But I think there's super interesting ways that, you know, so we built out an entire toolkit at Gartner around something called buyer enablement, which is how do I enable buyers to feel more confident about their ability to navigate their own internal processes? And you can do this through calculators. I think one of the best ways I've seen this done is through consensus building guides, Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, for someone like, so 
um, you know, did this really well. And there's a lot before we found, in fact, this was the inspiration for some of these ideas was Marketo way back in the day of with marketing automation. Right. Um, Marketo famously built out online um, a buying guide for not not for Marketo, but for marketing automation. And, And the whole idea was so my. I'm selling to a CMO because it's marketing automation, but I also understand the reality that that CMO has to go talk to the CIO and probably the CFO and probably the head of sales. And there's a whole cast of characters they got to get on board. And, and heck, this marketing automation thing is, is brand new to marketers, let alone to heads of IT or heads of finance. So I need to equip my marketing customer stakeholder to go have those conversations. So it was like, here's who you talk to. Uh, I'm I'm overstating it a little bit or simplifying it really, right. but um, but here's who to talk to. Here's what order to talk to them, and here's when to get them involved. Usually early, not later. Here's the three questions they're going to have. Here's the best way to convey an answer in their language to that question. Here's the data you'll need to have that conversation. We've seen lots of different versions of this over the years, um, but the the broader point is, what can you do as a supplier, rep or marketing, digital or in person, to to guide or coach your customers through their decision-making process such that they feel more confident. I I think we're seeing, I don't know that anyone's done this really well. I think marketers have done this more systematically because marketing's always done at scale, right? But, but for a like, well, like show me the sales organization where every single sales rep does that regularly and fantastically. I think I'd be hard pressed to find it, but we see pockets of, I see pockets of companies doing this, uh, or at least individuals doing this very well. Well, I wanted to dig down too in this jobs to be done idea. Yeah. Because yeah, at the heart of, Part of the spaghetti bowl are these, you know, somewhat linear four jobs that need to be accomplished. Yeah. That I believe that, yeah, the buyers are basically hiring sellers to help them get that job done, mm-hmm. those jobs done. And what always sort of amazes me is, is you know, I ask sales leaders, you know, they're looking at hiring people. I said, so have you asked your buyers what they need from your sellers? <laughs> right. And they're always in order to help them get these jobs done. Yeah, and it's I get these blank stares all the time. It's like, well, no, I need a hunter. I need an extrovert. I need a. It's yeah. like, no, let's talk to the buyers about this. Yeah, I'll never forget Andy. I was in a meeting in Chicago in the before times, before pandemic, and I was talking to. In this case, it, it, again, I it, I just happened to, a lot of anecdotes say from the marketing side, but no, this was a room of uh, chief marketing officers, and we were talking right. about these kinds of challenges, and we were talking about like, well, how would I map what's hard for the customer buying journey? And, um, and, and, and actually one of the marketers raised her hand and she said, well, how would I know where customers struggle? And, and the marketer right behind her said, and, and I said, at the same time said, you, you ask them, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and she, but you know, it's really scary slash sad. Um, and I won't name names because one, I can't remember them and two, it'd be unfair. But, um, but she said, she literally, and it was really interesting. You know what she said? She said, oh, I can't do that. And I yeah. and I was so surprised by it because it, cause I literally didn't understand what she was. I was like, "What do you mean?" I, hopefully, it wasn't snarky. But I said, "Why can't you do that?" She said, "My sales reps would never allow me to have that kind of conversation with my customers." And the head of the, the head of marketing sitting right behind her, I bleep you not, said, looked at her, said, "Oh, you got to change that." <laughs> but, yeah. but but this is but this is the world we live in more broadly, right? Is that right? Sure. Th- we we don't think to do the obvious stuff, which is you're a human being, your customer's a human being, they're struggling, you're trying to understand them. How about we have a conversation? How about we just have a conversation around what are you worried about? What you know, here's in working with other customers like you, here's where they run into trouble. Are you anticipating that? Have you thought about this? And and that's the stuff that you write about that I find so compelling is 
is the human element of sales marketing. We, we talk so much about right. digital versus in-person. How about if we talk about just humanness? Because that's at the, I mean, the, you know, I've, I've actually, I'm on record of saying in, in B2B, it's not because some people say it's not companies that buy things, it's people that do. It's right. B2P and we need to sell for people and it's very human. Right. I'm on the record of saying, yeah, but in B2B, it's not people that buy things, but groups of them that do. And that like makes it, things right. more complicated. But this heart and soul is still humanity, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and there's people that want to deny that. <laughs> it's like still, and I, yeah. I, I, well, I blame you a little bit. So, <laughs> is that that was awesome? <laughs> Tell me how. Well, because everybody. What a, you? By the way, get in line. But what have I done now? <laughs> anytime people want to take this the stand that the human side doesn't really matter. Yeah, they reference the challenger sale. Isn't that funny? They say, if you're the relational seller, then it's yeah. like, did you people not read that book? I mean, it's that's my first reaction. It's like, that's not what they were talking about at all. They're talking yeah. about the person who thinks that's only about the relationship. Um, but it's funny how often that comes up. So I don't blame you. I just, I, no, I, I tongue in cheek, but by the way, I get you. I, I mean, I, it's, it's a bit of a curse in my career. It's like, yeah, you know, both back when I was working as a professor and now, now of course, as a researcher, I, I get things, I hear things like, in the old days, it sounded like this. Someone would come to my office. I would say, Professor Adamson, I've been thinking about this a long time, and I've decided to take your advice. And it's like, and my reaction was always the same. It's like, oh, God, what did I say now? And, and then they tell me what they were going to do. And it's like, that's a horrible idea. Why would you ever do that? I never said you. But it, it's, it, feels, it feels like deja vu all over again, right? It's like, because right. I, I, you know, I did a meeting a while ago, and, and someone said, well, Brent, I, I took your advice. You know, it's like, Brent, I did what you told us to do. And then they proceed to tell me what they were doing. It's like, oh, no, it's like, but, really yeah. but, but to be fair to everybody, I mean, there's a lot of subtlety in the challenger sale, and we put yes. non we put non subtle language around a subtle concept, and to some degree, that was purposeful to make it sure. yeah. to break a frame, to make it stick, right. that sort of thing. Right. Um, but yeah, the relationship building is you know that that book turned into this battle royale around do relationships matter or not and the answer funny enough was always of course they matter the question is what is the basis of that relationship is it right. familiarity and knowing where your kids went to college or is it helping understand your business in ways that you yourself haven't understood it on right. your own that's one yeah. of the greek philosophers i forget which one was plato archimedes one of these aristotle was called this you know a friendship of utility and that's, <laughs> yeah. exact, that's exactly what it is right i mean there's some yeah thought leader a couple weeks ago on LinkedIn posted this thing. He says, you know, no one buyers don't want a human connection. They've got enough friends. And my point was, oh. oh, wow, you really don't, you still don't get it. He's been on my show. We've argued about this. It's like, you still don't get it. You know, you know it's funny is because the, the two ideas can coexist simultaneously, well, yeah, right? Yeah, so, so you, well, you think about and not they don't even have to be dissonant. So think about yeah. someone like Robert Cialdini. I mean, the, the great, yep. if I may, Robert Cialdini wrote the book yep. Influence. And if your listeners haven't read it, I mean, you and I would agree probably like that's up there in the Mount Rushmore. The, yes. You know, it's absolutely. like it's, it's you have to read Influence. And one of the things that Cialdini talks about in his work broadly is something called a value exchange, which is. Mm -hmm. Uh, when you give me something of value, I am more inclined to give you something. I'm, I'm more likely to reciprocate, to give you something right. back of value. Now, here's right. where it gets interesting. That doesn't have to be, you know, you give me a, 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 a widget with features and benefits and I give you money. It could be, and this is where the humanity comes. This is how we square the circle. You could 
help me feel more confident in myself. You could help me feel better about my ability to make decisions on behalf of my company. And you know what? That's valuable to me. Being around you, Andy, Andy makes me feel better about myself. This is literally how relationships work, right? We're friends with, we date people, not that we like, hopefully, yes, that you like, but also that make that that when you're around them, you like yourself a little bit more. And so this, this gets really interesting. I am willing to pay you with my time, maybe with my money, if you're the person that helps me feel better about myself and my ability to make decisions on behalf of my company, I, I think that's where this stuff gets really interesting. And that's where transactions and humanity meet up on the other side. Right. And I've written about this in, I think, in all three of my books at this point. Yeah. Is that, is that there's basic bargain that exists between sellers and buyers, which is the buyers give you some of their time and attention. What are you giving them in return? 100%. And yeah. And if you can't give them something of value in return, then you stop getting time and attention. And this this is very simple. And you don't that doesn't exist in the absence of a connection with another human being. Same works in marriage, I think. I'm not sure. I'm not oh, it is. absolutely. Is. <laughs> but yeah. absolutely does. I mean, so yeah. this gets to one of the you know, big things I wrote about in my latest book is that what's the job as a seller? It's not to persuade somebody to buy your product. It's to listen to the buyer. Understand the things that are most important to them in terms of the challenges they face and the outcomes they want to achieve, and then help them get that. But that's, as I told someone on the show a couple weeks ago, I said, well, you know, how do you improve your relationship with a, a partner or a spouse? You know, listen yeah. to them, understand what's most important to them, and then help them get that. Hundred percent. In fact, let me, let me throw this at you because this came. I was doing a. I had a conversation with Matt Dixon um, last week, mm-hmm. and, and Matt co-author of the Challenger Sale, good friend. Uh, he's got a new book coming out, by the way, um, yes. called The Jolt Effect. I'm. It's coming really on, funny because Matt on the show soon. Good. Also, it's really funny, by the way. Just as a quick footnote, uh, is because Matt's got a new book out. Everyone thinks I have a new book out. I am not the co-author of that book. Um, I wouldn't mind being. It's a great book, but I'm I'm not associated with it. But the. Uh, um, something that Matt talks a lot about in his book too, about human biases and, and how they get in the, the way of, or they, they lead to customers struggling to make these kinds of decisions, very similar to the kind of stuff I've been talking about. And, and all of that happened within this context of the economy and the fact that at least right now in this moment, we seem to be, if not heading into a recession, we're certainly heading into uncertain economic right. waters and that a lot of people are pulling back or deferring decisions. Um, and my argument in that conversation, it wasn't an argument because I think we all agreed, but the way I articulated it, I think will resonate with you is I think the single biggest barrier to customers being able to decide today, customers, customers struggle today to decide not because of the economy. I think customers struggle to decide because of their humanity. In other words, it's the human what I mean by that is it's not just, oh, like the economy will get better and all this, this, um, confusion and mm-hmm. all of this, the, 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 the things that are slowing down buying are going to go away because it's economy driven. It's driven by I'm overwhelmed as a person, as a human by the complexity of our decision making process. I am overwhelmed by just too much quality information. You tell me to zig there, tell me zag. I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed by my ability to articulate what the value of this thing is. So so as a result, I'm uncertain. So Matt would argue it's not that I love the status quo. It's just that I'm uncertain of how to change. Right. I'm not confident in my ability to change. And I'd agree with that. But those it, it keeps coming back to me, Andy, and I think it does for you too in all of my research and work is we're talking about very human dynamics here. This right. is a this is about how we not as buyers work, but how we as people work. work. Exactly. Right? And that that's where so someone asked me today, 
in fact, this actually happens a lot. It probably happens to you too. Like, what's the best sales book I should read? And there's always this constant post on LinkedIn about the top five sales right. books you should read. Right. And I think everyone thinks I'm joking when I reply. I think the best sales book you could read is probably Grapes of Wrath by Steinbeck. You know, it's a, and, and that's just an example of many, many other Tony Morris. And I mean, pick a really right. great author. The reason right. why is because these authors aren't talking about selling at all. They're talking about human beings and the human condition and these great sort of sweeping pictures of how we interact with each other and empathy and care and, yep. and, and, I, I I take of mice and men over any sales handbook any day of the week because it's just yeah, my, it's about the humanity. Yeah, my my answer is always Shakespeare, but um, to the same. I point. don't get Shakespeare. I'm not smart enough, but I get you. I, but I'm with you in in spirit. <laughs> yeah, just, I mean, there's yeah you know, a body of of work that says, hey, you know, Shakespeare and the way he wrote basically define the way we define relationships today and, and right? define ourselves as humans in large part in the Western yeah. civilization. So. Um, yeah, yeah. It's rarely a sales book. First of my list when people say one book they should read. So yeah, but we we always fall back in the trap of process, don't we? Because we want to because we want to scale, which I totally understand. It's the question I hear from heads of sales more often than not is, how do I take the goodness you talk about and not just mm -hmm. do it, but do it at scale? How do I get not five people to do it, but five hundred people to do it? And how do I get them to do it in this quarter? Right. So it's so we're always in a hurry. And we're always trying to do things at, at, at volume. And so that naturally leads to, well, we have to have a process and we have to have a methodology and we have to have stage gates and we have to track it in, in our CRM system, which means we have to have drop down menus. And I, it's hard to argue with any one of those individual exactly. points. Right. But it's like, it's like, you know, it's like death by a thousand cuts because it seems to almost inevitably takes us each one of those one little half step away from, from this humanness to the point where we've processed ourselves to death and we get food in a box as opposed to, you know, food from the produce section. That was a weird metaphor, but hopefully you followed me. <laughs> yeah, I did. But I mean, yeah. to a point, larger point you're making though is, is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a friend of mine, Kean McLaughlin runs a company called Trinity Perspectives based in Australia. They've specialized the last N number of years doing win loss analysis for enterprises around mm -hmm. the world. And so they've conducted you know, thousands, literally thousands of in-person interviews and about this. And he summarized their data recently and I, into nine reasons why you win a big deal, mm -hmm. nine reasons why you lose a big deal. Hmm. Nowhere on there does it talk about products, price. <laughs> yeah, the these things, that, these hard skills oriented things that we teach. In fact, mm -hmm. nine reasons of the nine reasons you win, seven of them are just very human oriented. Well, I, I in my book, I call selling in, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. based on your connection, your curiosity, your understanding, your generosity. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the product. It's about how the buyer is experiencing you as a seller. And similarly, on the nine reasons why you lose, fully five or six out of the nine are based on what I call selling out, right? It's yeah. Just well, you know, what's really interesting, maybe even humbling is I would imagine, I haven't seen the list, but, you know, Many of the nine, or maybe it's a separate list altogether, and that's what I'm not sure on, probably don't have anything to do with the supplier at all. In other words, yeah. we didn't buy from you because we couldn't get our bleep together inside our own company. We didn't buy from you because we had debates internally about what problem we were even trying to solve in the first place, right? There's or a, you couldn't help us get the job done. That would, a lot of them have yeah. that, that tone to it is, look, yeah, there was just failure really to help us at these dimensions to get the job done that they needed yeah. to get done. Hey, let me ask you this. So, because sure. I get this question, I have gotten for, well, 12 years since Challenger came out. I would imagine you do too, is when you're, you're out, 
out there, wherever that is, talking about being more generous, being more empathetic, right. leading with humanity, all these things that, that right. feel right. And I think we all want to do. But sometimes I think we have a hard time drawing a clear, bright line between those kinds of behaviors, which resonate to an actual signed deal for a couple million dollars. So what happens if I'm generous and I'm empathetic and I'm all the things you talk about and a customer says, man, I love you. By the way, we decided to go with your competitor, but holy mackerel, I love you. I mean, <laughs> give, give me your take on, I mean, I've, I've gotten the version of this question for years. I'd love to get your take on this. Yeah. Well, I've gotten actually a fair amount recently with that publication of the book, which was, yeah, Andy, I, I love it, but I've got a number to hit. Right. <laughs> right. So I'm, saying, so I'm saying, oh, so what you're telling me is that in order to succeed, you have to be really salesy, right? You think that's the secret to success in sales is being salesy. Well, no, no. But what you're saying, you, yeah, you have a number to hit, right? And it's like, well, I sort of lay it out in the book and I had to discover this through experience is that this whole idea about sort of the good enough choice, the good enough decision mm -hmm. yeah, is for me, that was hugely powerful. It's right. It's like the customers, there are certain milestones that exist and customers making a, a decision, my experience has shown, and mm -hmm. they have a lot to do with connection, credibility, mm -hmm. trust, uh, storytelling, uh, presenting a compelling vision, building consensus. These things that just, these are you know, milestones that buyers have to go through. Yeah. It's, if you focus on those, those don't come about by being pushy, manipulative, you know, technique driven, and so on. They come about by being a human and helping somebody get something that's important to them, get their job done. Well, let me ask you this. So, so there's, cause I often think about this in two different ways. So one is, um, I'm going to be somewhat crass and commercial about this, but it's, it's good to tie the two together. I think, as you sure. probably agree, but, um, is it a share play or is it a market size play? In other words, so if, if I'm trying to just beat the competition, then I want to outperform my competitors. So there's a deal on the table. I, I'm you know bake off and I'm trying to win it against right. them. So I think they're the argument be, they're going to go with the better person, the more, I don't know. But but then there's also, what if I'm not competing against the competition? I'm competing against status quo. I'm competing against confusion. I'm competing against lack of confidence. And right. I'm just trying to get more people to come to any kind of decision and just take my fair share of the bigger pie. Do you, do you, uh, in other words, am I, am I trying to steal share or am I trying to just create more opportunity? Do you, do you think you're, you're, I, I think I know where you're going to go and I think I agree, which is both, but, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, is, is does it apply equally well? Does it apply differently? I, I I'm legitimately curious because I, because these yeah. are the kinds of things I explore in my own head as I think about these ideas. Yeah. I mean, one of the ways I think about it and have thought about because yeah, I consider myself sort of a non-traditional salesperson, much like you came right. from academia. Yeah. I didn't come from yeah. academia, but I was you know, a liberal arts major and yeah. what, what the hell did I know? Right. Uh, totally. Yeah, spent my whole career basically in tech. Um, you like Shakespeare. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, right. That's my first reference for books. But I somehow learned early on that that I was the difference, right? That when I was mm. winning deals, it was sure there was a team of people helping, and so yeah. You know, but it was us as humans that was making the difference. And yeah. I really learned this as I talk about in the book is what part is you know selling for startups. Selling really large, you know, seven, eight, nine figure type deals against just billion dollar multinational companies and winning for these mission critical jobs. Oftentimes we didn't have a product to show them. In those cases, why were why were we winning? 
Yeah. And is due to the people, right? I mean, I one one uh, example of a customer, a large telecom company, I won't name, but one of the larger, yeah. larger ones. And they they were looking to build a product similar to one that we had sort of been talking about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been working for a long time and, and I'd finally get my CEO, take them down there, sort of meet with their CEO. And we walk out of the meeting and my CEO says, yeah, they're never going to buy from us. <laughs> so I said, well, what are you talking about? I said, of course they're going to buy from us. He says, no, no, no. He says, you realize they've got 300 engineers on payroll to develop this type of product. We've got a hundred people in our company, right? <laughs> Total. Yeah. He says, there's no way they're going to buy from us. I said, but you don't understand. They trust us more than they trust their people internally. Yeah. And it wasn't, we had nothing for them to trust us other than us as humans talking to them. Right. Well, okay. So, so are you being, so, so are you being, all right. So that's, that's a really interesting story in that story. Are you being disingenuous or are you being genuine? Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, but, but you're like, Hey, we got them to trust us, even though we don't have a product or no, we got them to trust us because we're trustworthy people. I see. You know, yeah, I can, and yeah. we had, we obviously had to demonstrate the trustworthiness, you know, through right. the process, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, because you see why I, so, so I, cause I think someone could do to your story and therefore your broader approach, exactly what they do to challenger, which is take it and spin it a hundred degrees on its head and say, it's the exact, I need to get people to trust me even when I'm lying, but that's not at all what you're saying. Uh, right. Which right. Is, but I think people can sort of do that maybe on a transactional type type problem. Yeah. But if you're spending over a year with people, right. Hmm. On an extended sales cycle. Yeah. There's no BSing at that point. Right. A hundred percent. But I, another point I was making is I've subscribed for a long time. This, uh, you know, it doesn't apply directly to sales. I've taken it into sales. Is mm-hmm. you know, Kahneman came up with this idea, this peak end rule, mm-hmm. which was that when people go through an experience and they go look back to make a decision on it, they basically factor, take into account two things to make the decision. One was the peak experience during or peak event during that experience, and mm-hmm. what was the last event in that experience. And so from a seller standpoint, I wrote about this in my second book is mm-hmm. you can't predict in advance what's going to be the peak event for the buyer. And so you really have to bring the best of you every time you interact with them because everyone could be the event that they was most memorable to them. And, yeah. and I think that if people have this perspective and say, because, you know, you sort of map out a, a sales engagement is count how many times you actually interact, you know, meaningful and substantively with the, with the buyer. It's not that many times and compared to how much time you have in a day and a week and a year and a month. It's like you only have to be the best you as a human, you know, a couple handfuls of times. But I think this is why we're also exhausted. We turn the zoom off at the end of the day, right? It's cause we just like, right. wow, I just, I just poured the best of me into eight hours of nonstop calls. But the, uh, I think you're right. The, you know, here, let me, let me get your reaction to this. The, um, you know, in, in sales, we ask the question, how do we get them to buy all the time? Right. That that's kind of like the heart and soul of sales has been for decades. Like, how do we get them to buy? How do we get them to buy? And I think that where we're looking at what you and I are talking about and where we're going forward, where the world needs to go forward is, is moving that question from how do we get them to buy to how do we help them decide mm-hmm. that, that to me is a nice way of framing up at least the potential future of our profession is our, our not job, but our opportunity 
is less of getting someone to buy and more helping someone decide. Because at the end of the day, they're, they're struggling not with a buy with a purchase. They're struggling with a decision. Decision, I agree. And they need help, right? And they need a lot of help. Just like we as consumers need help. On like, you know, I, I've joked in the last couple of days about you know I'm on Amazon trying to buy a fifteen dollar dongle for my computer, and I'll spend three hours looking at bleeping star reviews. And this one's got four point two and four point eight. And finally, I'm just saying, I just three hours later, I haven't made a decision. I put it. I click save for later and just defer the whole thing. I walk away, <laughs> right? And that's kind of what's happening in B two B. And it's like you know, I just yeah. wish someone would help me. And then a sales rep raises his or her hands, and I'll help. He's like, oh no. Not you, anyone but you. But I do want help, right? So, so it's like, how can I be that person when I, when when your customer raises their hand and says, "I just, I just bleep and need someone to help me." How do you be the kind of person that they'd welcome the help from? That's that's, that's an interesting way to look at it. In my book, exactly. That's why it resonated with me. Exactly. Yeah, that, that was yeah. that was really, yeah, you know, in part an effort to to answer that question. Yeah. You know, the, there's a the, the head of sales, uh, actually, he's now the chief strategy officer as well at a company called Expedient. It's a guy named Brian Smith. He's a friend of mine and uh, someone I've gotten to know as a client and a friend. Um, and I talk about him a little bit in the article in HBR called Sense Making for Sales, which right. is um, is worth people's time. I, I'd like to humbly submit. Um, but the. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. uh, um, Thanks, man. The, uh, and what I tell you about Brian, I brought Brian up for a reason because it's completely relevant here is I, I've literally heard Brian say to his sales force, and, and by the way, he's brilliant. He, he's brilliant. He said, our job as a sales force, as a sales organization, as a commercial team, our job is to help our customers make the best decision they can in as little time as possible. And, yes. and I, I, it's, it's just like that. So notice it's, it's focused on help. It's yes. helping on deciding, not buying. It's helping customers because they're the ones struggling. And then there's a as little time as possible because let's short cycle it for them to reduce their pain. Let's short cycle it for us to reduce the opportunity cost of our time. The last place right. you want to finish in sales is a second, right? So, yep. but I just I love that it's such a simple articulation of the opportunity in front of us. How can we help our customers make the best decision we can or they can in as little time as possible? And and he followed it on with. You know, and by the way, if we ultimately are not the choice of that decision, they choose to go somewhere else, at least they made that decision quicker, not longer. And at least yeah. we were there, the ones to be helpful to them. And and that, and that goodwill will come back to us eventually, right. someday, in some form, that goodwill will come back to us as we are the ones that help to make good decisions they feel good about. I love that 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 sort of articulation of what sales yeah. could be. Well, I've I've got a very similar description of my book about the buyer's the buyer's job, which is yeah, yeah. quickly quickly gather and make sense. Our job is to help the buyer quickly gather and make sense of the information they need to make an informed decision with the least investment of time, attention, and resources possible. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, which buyers, is that's more words, same idea, but but they're good words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but buyers buyers don't set out to spend an infinite amount of time. I mean, it's like right. people are. Sellers have to be mindful of the fact that these are people doing a job, and this this job of buying is not their main job. It's not what they're getting, no, you know, the no. rewarded on. Yeah. It's not what they're being measured on. It's just something else that's been added to their plate. And what do you want to do, if possible, when you have that extra duty? Is you want to get it off your plate and get it off your so checklist? I, I have asked. Um, because uh, there's a there's a number of reasons why in the research we were doing around buyer enablement things, but uh, over the course of about five years, I asked literally thousands of people in meetings I was doing around the world a very simple question, which is: these are senior leaders, C level officers in various right. functions, mostly sales and marketing. But the uh, think back to a purchase you made or you were a part of in your own organization, right. a, a large scale solutions purchase, whether CRM system and I don't know consulting engagement, you know, six figure deal of some kind or higher. And I said, think about the time it took. Think about the people involved. Think about the steps you had to go through now. And then I'd let, them, let that sink in for a second. They said, now, 
If I were to ask you for one word, one adjective to describe that experience, what would that word be? And and the two things I would tell you about that exercise, Andy, not surprisingly, I, I again, I've asked literally thousands of people because mm-hmm. we used to do big conferences too. One positive word out of thousands. It was all negative, right? So right. long, hard, frustrating, awful. Um, someone said, someone's word was, I never want to do that again. I'll never forget that. That was her word. I never want to do that again. It's like, and I always, to which I always follow up. It's like, what do you do? When the number one word your customer thinks about, not in buying your solution, but thinking in, when thinking about buying a solution like yours is, I never want to do that again. But the other thing is, just think about every one of those words, long, hard, frustrating, awful. Those aren't rational. Those aren't words of rational thought. Those are words of emotion. Those are words. Those are affective words, right? Mm-hmm. They are, they are, they're words that you, they're words of things you feel not things right. that you know. And and this to me is always such a, a missed opportunity in sales because we're always solving, always this is overstated, but we're more often than not solving in sales for something we want our customers to know. I want you to know about my product. I want you to know about the, comp- the list of companies that put their trust in us. I want you to know about the speeds and feeds. I want you to know about our brand. I want you to know that we were founded in 1875 in the back of a pickup truck by someone named Elmer, I, whatever it is, right? But we don't, we rarely solve for what we want our customers to feel, And that's the missed opportunity. Every conversation you have, every slide you show them, every demo you do, every call you make, it sounded like a sting song there for a second. But anyway, the, uh, is, is to ask yourself, that that was funny. Is every cake you bake, but is, but is, is ask yourself, not, not just what do I want my customers to know, but what do I want my customers to feel? And, and that, that's a superpower that, that, and, and so this is, this leads something I've been meaning to ask you about. So I, I I don't want to, Go too long, but I, but there's something you really caught my eye in your book um, with the word empathy because it's something I thought a lot about over the years. Mm-hmm. And you actually offered uh, an idea in your book that there's actually more than one kind of empathy. And and I followed you, but I was on a plane and we landed and I had to get out of the plane and I, I didn't get back to it until later. And so I, I missed the thread. And I was hoping you could just take me through Seriously, you didn't know this is coming. This isn't canned. I legitimately <laughs> want to know. I'd love to get your. I'd love to hear your riff on empathy because you you meant you suggested there were different kinds of empathy that we need to think about. Well, there are. And yeah, I mean, this is yeah, not yeah, my original thought. I mean, this comes from yeah, uh, Paul Bloom who wrote about the book called Against Empathy. Um, right. Yeah. And, but his. Yeah, his argument was that you know the conventional form of empathy that we always think about, compassionate empathy, which is mm-hmm. you know, I, I I I feel your pain. Is I that feel your pain, yeah. right? Yeah. Is he said the problem with that is it doesn't leave you any information to mm. address the pain, mm. right? It's it's I feel your pain, and then he says you know he spoke up more globally, like you know global policy makers and you know politicians and so on is is yeah. that's a poor basis on which to form policy because we just know somebody feels something, but what we don't know is why they feel the way they do. Right. So Bloom also talks then about cognitive empathy, which is really understanding the reason why someone feels the way they do. And if I understand why they feel, then I actually have information I can take to try to change how they feel. Yeah. Otherwise I'm just yeah. guessing. But if I had, so yeah. I think for sellers, it's, it's just part of this whole idea of, you know, one of the pillars of selling in being understanding is we have to understand why people have feel the way they do. And when we do that, then we have more information to act on to say, well, how do we help them change that? So, so a couple of years ago, actually a number of years ago, and it was about 12 almost early challenger days. 
based on just my own experience of working with executives coming again, remember I was a German professor and all of a sudden I wake up one day and I'm talking to chief sales officers about like sales process designs. Like what? So I had to learn, I had to learn very quickly how to talk to them as if I knew what I was talking about, even though I didn't. And so that's where this phrase and working with other customers like you, one of the things we've learned is that's where that phrase came from is me just being a conduit, not being the expert, but channeling the other people I was talking to. But this led to ultimately on the emotion side, something I eventually came to call hypothesis led empathy. And hypothesis-led empathy is is talking to someone about it and and just – so you're talking about so like, oh, our sales process is broken or our CRM says no one's filling it, whatever challenge they're facing. Right. And, then, and then what I would do is – it wasn't a wild guess, but an educated guess. I'd say, wow, that, that sounds like it must be really frustrating or it sounds like that's got to be really mm-hmm. painful. And then I just listen very carefully what they say next. So they're like, oh, tell me about You have no idea. Or maybe they say, no, actually, it's not that bad. You know what it really is? It's actually maddening. And so, but what, would they give me something back? And so I do that two or three times. And then it because so then I had like a decent hypothesis, like, okay, more often than not, this seems to be maddening. So the mm-hmm. fourth time I'm talking to someone, I say, you know, in, in working with a lot of customers uh, like you, I, I often hear that's just incredibly maddening. I'm guessing that's probably what you're feeling too. Oh, you have no idea, right? So now, mm-hmm. now I've created like this equal footing, footing where that eventually gets us, oh man, that is maddening, isn't it? Oh, Brent, tell me about it. Now we're like buddies, right? But, right, but right, it's right. like you can, you can hypothesize your way to empathy. You can hypothesize yeah. your way to, and you can do the same with what you're talking about, the, the, this practical side of the, as you root cause, like not just what, how it feels, but why does it feel that way? I'm guessing it's probably one of two things. It's either this or this, isn't it? Oh, no, Brent, you're yes. totally wrong. It's this, actually. Oh, it is. Oh, next time you're talking, it's like, I hear it's one of three things. And and again, you can build yourself, you can build a path to knowledge in a highly credible way yep. by by hypothesizing, testing, and then building out that test and then sharing that with increasing confidence, always just playing the role of conduit as opposed to expert. I right. uh, Hopefully, there... it's helpful to someone because I, I find that's a technique I've used to, to affect really for like years. That. I mean, yeah. I really like that approach, but what you're really doing is you're, you're posing a question, right? Yeah. With the hypothesis. Yep. So you're enabling yourself or allowing yourself to be curious, right? In that yeah. situation, as opposed to saying, oh, well, you know, this buyer feels this pain point. Thus, they're just like all these other buyers. Exactly. Confirmation instead bias. Of saying, yeah. Instead of saying, no, this is a unique individual. Yes, they're similar, but where your acumen comes from is recognizing there's a difference and trying to find out what yeah. that difference is. And if you understand that difference, well, that opens the door to opportunity, right? <laughs> and you have to be willing to be wrong, right? You have to be oh, like, it's like, to be it's like that, that must be maddening. No, Brent, actually it's not maddening at all. Oh, okay. Tell me more. Yeah. I mean, and, and, yeah. I, and like, oh, I hate myself. I said maddening. I, you can't beat yourself up for it. And you have to, you have to just take that, accept it in and not be apologetic. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought there's not that the posture is just curiosity. The posture exactly. is learning together. And, and if, if, if someone corrects me, I, not to sound cliche, but that's a gift, right? Because you've just made me smarter. So now the next time I have a conversation like this, I know better what to say to be more accurate. Exactly. And, and yeah. the more I get corrected, the better I feel. Well, I, I look back at my early experience, my first job out of college, I was selling computer systems, you know, big computer room full of metal uh, to companies. (laughs) Which which now we carry around in our pocket. But yeah. (laughs) Well, 500 times more powerful in our pocket. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it was all for accounting applications, the whole entire general ledger, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, fresh out of college, I knew nothing about business, really. I mean, I'd taken accounting in college, big deal, right? Yeah. But I knew nothing. And I was out talking to CEOs, sort of like you, except I was a lot younger and I looked 60 years old. But they gave me their time. 
It's so crazy, why right? they why they give me their time? Well, because I was just curious. That's that always been me, right? And I just curious, yeah. ask questions because I could learn. Yeah. And yeah. if you show up and you're authentic and you're sincere and and you ask, you know, follow the thread instead of just being you know, satisfied. Well, I answered this question on my script. Now I'll go to the next one. You'd be surprised what you learn. So what's your take then on things like sales process, sales methodology? I mean, there, there's a because it kind of sounds like throw all that out because it makes us too rote and we should just be humans. But I don't, you wouldn't no, go that no, far, no, would I, you? I, no, no, not at all. I've got a yeah. I'll send you this diagram after we're done. I've drawn up that shows a human serve or a glorified stick figure divided in half. Right. And, yeah. and on the left side, as you're looking at is yeah, process, methodology, techniques, yeah. you know, hard skills and so on. And, and on the right side are all the human attributes I write about in my book and more. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd say, yeah, you know, on the left side, the, where the hard skills are, I says, yeah, these are what help you sell. On the human side, these are what help you win. And mm. when buyers make a decision, they buy from the human side. So you know, I, I, would, I would, if I may, I'd, I'd even say these are what help you sell versus these are what help you connect. And it's when yeah. you connect, when you sell and connect, that's how you win, right? It's uh, right. Either way, we're on the same page. I, yeah, um, but it's just, yeah. yeah. That's the cool. difference. And and it's I think it's become even more pronounced. I, mean, I agree. I wrote about this in my first book ten years ago, but it was evident even then. Is you know, as you said, buyers are overwhelmed. You know, you look at you know one one segment, you know, sort of conversational intelligence, let's say, is mm-hmm. maybe two and a half years ago there were a dozen vendors. Now there's four dozen vendors <laughs> with that, you know, similar capability. Right. So if you're a buyer, how do you tell the difference between them? Exactly. Right? They all look alike. They all sound alike. They all have the same product, same features, basically yada, yada, yada. It boils down to the seller. Or, seller your <laughs> or your website. Or your website. Or your website. But that's a different, that's probably a different show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Product led growth, then yes, absolutely. But uh, yeah. but even then, yeah, at some point, if it's a large enterprise buying, a seller salesperson is going to show up. By, by the way, though, just just as a slight footnote, I, I continue to find a, a fascinating question, which is everything that we just talked about, about humanity, about emotion, about empathy. Um, I think the big missed play on the marketing side is how do I take everything that we just talked about and right. bake it into our digital experience? And I think it's possible. Yeah. I, don't, I, I don't it won't be exactly the same. There's not a one for one transfer. But 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 everything we do with our customers digitally should come from the exact same posture. Full stop. I, and I don't. I, I think as bad as we are on the selling side, sometimes we're even worse on the on the digital side. Yeah. No, I I agree. All right, yeah. we'll leave it with that, Brent. Okay. Thank you so much, Andy. It's my pleasure as always. It's um, yeah, I, yeah. It's there's so much to discuss, but at the end, it comes down to a simple lesson of just like be the most awesome version of you you can be, the most human version of you you can be, and make that connection. I just, I, I, I you and I are so aligned on what we're talking about. I just really appreciate the chance to chat. Well, likewise. So, um, yeah, people want to connect with you. Best way to do that, LinkedIn? Um, yeah. The, so the new company is ecosystems.us is our website. For those who are interested in this idea of value, value engineering, um, value management, which is spanning all sorts of disciplines, we actually have a community we're building um, called the Customer Value Community. Um, and you can find more about that on on the website or just hit me up on LinkedIn and um, I'll, I'll direct you where you need to go. And just I'd love to connect with anybody about it. So, um, so yeah, there you go. All right. Awesome. Thank you. All right, Andy. Cheers. Stay safe, man.
Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Brent Adamson, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>